According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 4 as we get started. Are the recording levels okay? We're good? All right. We were warned about uh, Wednesday night. By the way, I appreciate Robert Jewell filling in for me Wednesday night and teaching the class that he taught. And uh, if you have any questions related to eternal security or the assurance of your salvation, I tell you, Robert uh, teaches a, a marvelous class on that. So I can recommend that wholeheartedly. <clears throat> All right, Philippians chapter 4. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, for the blessing and privilege that it is for us to assemble together. Father, it's, uh, we take it for granted, and uh, we have brothers and sisters in Cameroon and other places around the world, and, and they're getting shot at, Father. Their property is getting burned down. Um, they assemble when they think they can, and they hide in the jungle and on other occasions, Father. And so, um, Father, it's just uh, hard to imagine. Uh, walk in the Christian way of life and circumstances like that, and yet there they are staying faithful, keeping their eyes fixed on you, and we want to do the same thing, Father. We want to keep our eyes fixed on you and not be so distracted by the wealth and prosperity and blessings that we have in this land. Father, uh, use today to minister to your children. Continue to bless us, Father, and might we also be partakers in the struggles that, that our brothers and sisters are having even now. We just thank you and praise you, Father, in, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, Philippians chapter 4, and we have the exhortation for these women to, to knock it off and, and start getting along because they used to bear a lot of fruit and uh, they need to get back to that routine again. And then we get to the imperatives of verses 4 through 9. And really that's where we've been in our recent classes. Uh, seven imperatives provide a practical how-to recipe for uh, standing firm in the Lord. It was the imperative that began the chapter with uh, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And uh, now we have uh, really practical ways by which this can happen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So if you're going to track these imperatives one through seven, then uh, you need to write down number one is rejoice. And then number two is also rejoice. You know, go back and see number one again and do it again. Keep on rejoicing. And those are the first two imperatives. The third imperative is a passive imperative. The passive imperatives are the ones that we don't actively do, but we allow for them to be done to us. We uh, keep from hindering them from happening. Let your uh, gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And so that's a passive imperative. Let it be known. Make it so. Let it be known. And uh, passive imperatives are often the most difficult ones to, uh, to obey. The third and the fourth, uh, let's see, the fourth and the fifth imperatives under point five. The fourth and fifth imperatives are twin absolutes, and this is where we currently are. Uh, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanks. And this is uh, the in nothing, in everything absolute uh, contrast that Paul draws here. Uh, I call them absolutes because when you talk about in nothing, that leaves nothing out. It's an absolute statement. In nothing means in nothing. 
And if you try to find an excuse or you try to find an exception or say, well, yeah, but what about this? Then um, you have to go back and say, well, what part of nothing do you not understand? We're to be anxious for nothing. And then in case that's not clear enough, he repeats it a second time by switching it around and saying, but in everything. Uh, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And so there's the in nothing, in everything contrast, and he uses twin absolutes to uh, to communicate it. Paul is actually fond of this, in nothing, in everything contrast. We have an example of it in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 and 4. Other examples of it throughout the New Testament. Paul likes repeating himself. And if that means uh, saying the same thing a couple of different ways or three different ways or four different ways, the Apostle Paul is, is quite able to do that. Uh, under point B, we talked about the be anxious for nothing. And really, I like to turn the words around a little bit. It might be awkward in English. We might sound like Yoda a little bit if we if we vary our word order in, in things like that. But really, by putting the for uh, nothing up front and putting the in everything up front, that helps us to uh, to see the parallel. And really, it says be anxious. So it's really not an imperative to not be anxious. It's an order to be anxious. But then it says to be anxious for nothing, for not even one thing. And so that, I think, just makes it more forceful. It makes it more uh, more clear and uh, dealt with the issues there. All right, now with respect to the making our requests known. This is point C. I'm going to skip over. We had a couple of sub-points there. In everything, make God to know your requests. In everything, make God to know your requests. Cause Him to know. Cause Him to know. You know, we've talked in the past about how uh, information is communicated and sometimes it's clearly uh, transmitted, but it's not clearly received. Sometimes uh, there's a difference between teaching and learning, which is useful. It's not, uh, it's, they're entirely separate verbs. It's not just that uh, I'm teaching in the active voice and you're, you're uh, being taught in the passive voice. Not how it works. I'm teaching in the active voice and you're learning in the active voice. And those verbs are very clear in the New Testament. And so there's a difference between telling somebody something and causing them to know something. And we want to cause God to know something. And I hope you've been chewing on it because I threw it out there a week ago and said, if God is omniscient, how do we tell him anything? How do we cause him to know anything when he knows everything? Right? It's like here in the Christmas season when you're just, you're stumped. What, what gift do you give to somebody who has everything? And well, how can you inform God of something that he doesn't already know? See, and when you have that conundrum, you've missed the point. The, the, the point is not that God doesn't already know it. We are informing him of what his omniscience already knows, but we want him to know it for other reasons besides his omniscience. That you can come to know something through all sorts of channels. You can come to know something through all sorts of, of different uh, experiences. And the omniscient God is the eternal I am who has known everything there is to know. But to learn things through experience is part of what Jesus did in his, in his humanity. He came and he walked our walk and he limited himself and he humbled himself and he learned through experience. Likewise, the Father, through prayer, is informed of things in a way that is different than what he just intrinsically knows by virtue of his omniscience. And I hope that makes sense. And I hope we can see that when you start to learn things through multiple sources, that too becomes a benefit. 
And it's a benefit for us. It's a benefit for God. God wants us to pray. He wants us to make our requests known. This is His display, not only in the human realm, but in the angelic realm. And uh, that'll become an important consideration as well. So the verb is norizo, G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. It's number 1107 in the Strong's Concordance. It has 25 New Testament uses. And uh, 24 of them are very similar. One of them stands out. And that's this one we're looking at here today. Okay, Out of the 25 different uses, 24 of them are very similar. One of them is the odd duck. And that's the one that we're going to be looking at. And uh, like the... Uh, <clears throat> that old Sesame Street song. I'm not going to sing it for you, but one of these things is not like the other. Okay, <clears throat> You know the song I'm talking about? All right. It's used 24 times for information conveyed to ignorant recipients. 24 times it's used, and you can just run through these, and, and we can even take a few minutes this morning if you want. We can run through some of these, and it's pretty obvious that as this verb is used, there is either God is doing it or a human being is doing it to another human being, and they're informing them of things that they were otherwise unaware of, bringing it to their attention, informing them of these things. It's used only once for human beings conveying requests to the all-knowing, all-wise God. And of course, that's Philippians 4, 6b. I'll bring this up and make it larger so we can see it. There we go. Pop it out, maximize it, and make it larger. So here's uh, 25 results in 24 verses. This is a concordant search on our verb norizo. And uh, by bringing it, up, bringing it up in this fashion, we save all the page flipping and we can just scan down very quickly and see in the snippet view, uh, hopefully to trigger our thinking and these will hopefully be verses that we're familiar with anyway. But in Luke 2.15, um, angels are showing up to shepherds and uh, announcing things and what do they want to do? Um, you know, let's go uh, report the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us which is made known to us. And if the snippet itself is not sufficient, if the snippet itself does not jog your memory what it's about, then all you got to do, you can hover your mouse and the entire verse will pop up, or you can actually click it, and then uh, your Bible will open to that particular passage. So again, they came in a hurry, found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. What, what do you know? Just like the angel said, and when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And so it's a true statement. It's a, literally, it's a short-term prophecy. And they go and they have that prophecy fulfilled. And so now they've got uh, confidence for the other things that are said there as well. Another uh, usage lower down in the chapter. I think. Oh, maybe not. Oh, verse 15 and verse 17 one verse above where I had clicked. So when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they're informing people of things. They're informing people of the angelic visitation, the message they'd received, things that they were ignorant of, things they weren't aware of. They want to make that known. Likewise, John 15, 15 as we abide in the vine, as we bear much fruit. And Jesus talks about the things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This was his ministry to his disciples during his earthly walk. The things that he has heard from his Father that he has made known to his disciples. And then he's praying about it in John 17. 
that he has made the Father's name known to them, and he will make it known. This is conveying information to people that didn't have it otherwise, that would not have had access to it by other means, presumably. And so uh, they are informing uh, the disciples in that capacity. Likewise, Acts 2.28, you have made known to me the ways of life. That's an Old Testament quotation. Romans 9.22, here's a good one, 22 and 23. And I think this one is also useful in, uh, in a very clear parallel to what we're dealing with here as far as what God makes known to us, what God wants to make known to us, and why God suffers in permissive will to allow for sin and rebellion and other issues uh, because he's trying to reveal his will in the angelic conflict. And so, as it talks about it here in Romans 9, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And so just consider, you know, that God's got a bigger plan than we usually think about, and he's got all these purposes that are working together for good, and that he may defer certain desires because he has competing desires that he wants to manifest first. And so he prioritizes and he, he sequences the things that he's manifesting. That doesn't mean that he's, uh, he's limited. He's choosing these things because they're the best way to operate in his wisdom. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so this is God's wisdom to do this, to make known one thing uh, in, in de- or putting one thing aside so that he can make something else known as well. And then eventually, of course, uh, his power will be manifest. Uh, every tongue will confess, every knee will bend, and uh, his power will be made known. Uh, he does endure, but that's and his patience is long-suffering, but it's not eternal suffering, it's long-suffering. It does come to a conclusion, his wrath will be exercised, and... Uh, the uh, the judgment does come. So uh, keep that in mind as we talk about some other issues related to uh, Norizo and, and making known different things. Romans sixteen twenty six: the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. And that's described, by the way, as a completed action. And that's described uh, as something that's already been uh, put into effect. Um, this touches on some things we were dealing with in Dallas this week at the at the pre-trib conference. Notice in the in the doxology here to the book of of, uh, of Romans, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, that would be church age doctrine, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. This is similar to how Hebrews opens up, that God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, but in these last days He has um, uh, spoken through His Son. And this is the final argument. This is the, the keynote address. That when He's revealed through the Son in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel of salvation to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. And so the fact that it has been made known as a completed action, as a present reality, I think is significant. As, as uh, uh, the gospel has gone forth to the ends of the earth. And as far as where is Christ now? Where is the body of Christ now? I believe it's gone to the ends of the earth. And uh, did so through the revelation of Jesus Christ in his first advent. Anyway, we'll have more on that, I think, in some upcoming classes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, I make known to you 
No one speaking by the Spirit of God. That's, again, information to someone that didn't know it otherwise. 1 Corinthians 15.1, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Now, this is curious to me. I included it in this list. As you're making known information that was not previously known. And you think, well, the Corinthians certainly knew the gospel, did they not? They did and they didn't. And this is why Paul is making known to them the gospel. Why do you preach the gospel to somebody that's already saved? Is there another value in preaching the gospel to a saved person? Yes, there is. Because there's the ongoing phase two sanctification and the phase two salvation that, uh, that we need to approach. So I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, they're already saved, they received it, in which also you stand, there are believers standing in grace, by which also you are presently saved, presently saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so this then spans from phase one to phase two, the uses of salvation, and as, we, as we've taught several times, I'm starting to put little color codes in there, and I haven't done all of them yet, but uh, this little blue star is a clue that it's uh, phase two salvation, saved from the power of sin, delivered from sin, temptation, and snares. All right? If you take that as a phase one salvation and think that you have to you know, keep yourself saved, well, then you, you plunge into Arminian theology and a whole terrible consequence after that. All right. Just a few more, and you get the sense of this. Uh, in, in all these cases, we have somebody informing somebody else of something that they don't know. That's why we're looking at these verses. We have, we have a person who's communicating to another person information that they don't know and that they need to know. And so uh, in Second Corinthians 8, we wish to make known to you uh, the grace of God, which has been given uh, by the churches in Macedonia, that they put a fund together for famine relief in, in uh, Jerusalem. And that uh, the Corinthians were being invited to come alongside and get on board and join in that effort. And that uh, they were being, Paul wanted them to, uh, to, to know about it because they were not aware of it. Um, Galatians 1.11, I would have you know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me there. Ephesians 1.9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. We wouldn't have known it otherwise. We were ignorant until he made it known. Ephesians 3.3, 3, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Paul was ignorant until by revelation it was made known to him. Nobody in, in the Old Testament knew the mystery. Nobody from that, that you could have memorized the whole Old Testament and never known the mystery because it was withheld. It was mystery doctrine. That's what verse 5 says, and other generations was not made known. Presently, God is making his manifold wisdom known to the angels through the church. Other examples of that. Colossians 1.27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Tychicus is going to show up and bring you information. And uh, yeah, Peter says, we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord. So anyway, you can pursue that more if you want, but just a, a cursory survey on that. And I think the point bears out. When norizo is used, normally speaking, virtually every single time, you have an ignorant party that's receiving information of something they did not already know. With this verse in Philippians 4, 6, let your request be made known to God. We are informing the omniscient God. We, it, this is the only place in Scripture whereby norizo is used for uh, human beings conveying requests 
to the all-knowing, all-wise God. He already knows about it, and he already knows what needs to happen. (laughs) He knows what to do about it, right? Remember, in our prayer life, we're not telling God what to do, in a sense. We're not telling him, hey, this is my problem, and this is how I want you to solve it. We're making our request known. And he uh, knows better than we do about how to solve it, if it needs to be solved. And uh, some of the things we think are problems in need of a solution are not. They're problems in need of faithfulness. And that uh, the solution will come or not in time or in eternity. And uh, and we let it go from there. So I think uh, we have uh, aspects there. And I think this is also important. Like I say, there's other ways you can know things. And when you... Uh, <clears throat> Obviously, God knows all things through omniscience. But when He's informed of our need in our prayer life, that becomes an additional channel through which now He knows it twice. (laughs) Or now He knows it multiple times. What if you're not the only one praying? What if your wife is also praying? What if your church is praying? What if there is a multiplied prayer endeavor that goes up? Well, then there's multiplied channels. There's a, a chorus in our prayers that Scripture talks about. And a multiplied thanksgiving, when the answer is given, we can multiply our thanksgiving before the Lord. And uh, that's part of His plan as well. All right. So let's take a look at these terms then, because we have four prayer words in this verse. Four prayer terms are employed in this one verse all by itself. All four of them are nouns. Together with their cognate verbs, these eight words are used hundreds and hundreds of times. We're talking a total of 289 times in 256 verses in the New Testament. We have a significant uh, chunk of our New Testament that is given over to prayer, that's given over to what our function is in the church age, and how blessed we are to have this in the church age. And uh, that's what we're going to spend today and I expect Wednesday and upcoming weeks we're going we're gonna to be really zooming in on this and, and ex- expanding upon it, not only in Philippians, but also in Hebrews. Because in Hebrews we have our Melchizedek priesthood. In Hebrews we have our access through the apostle and high priest of our confession. So to have the Melchizedek doctrine in Hebrews come at the same time we're getting our prayer doctrine in Philippians, I think that's, uh, that's a marvelous thing. And I say thank you, Lord for uh, teaching this flock about the the privilege of prayer, especially in a season such as uh, he's brought us to at this time. All right, so we have these four terms. And you can see them in the English, as it says here. When it says, uh, in everything, make your request known to God. But it says, by prayer, that's one. Supplication, that's two. Thanksgiving, that's three. And request is four. All right, and all four of them are nouns. Prayer, supplication, um, which isn't always translated supplication. Sometimes it's translated petition, and so that's a problem. Sometimes it's translated entreaty, and so uh, we want to make sure we're straight on this. Thanksgiving and requests. Four different expressions with respect to prayer. Let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a consequence. And by the time we get through these four prayer terms, we'll see the wonderful consequence is the peace of God. Something that we can't understand, we can't comprehend, even when we're receiving it, it still doesn't make any sense to us. We're just thankful that we have it, (laughs) and we thank the Lord for for His peace. All right, so starting with prayer, and you may already know these terms, these are terms that we've seen repeatedly through the years, I'm sure, Uh, prosuke and prosukamai. And what I'm giving you is these four nouns plus their cognate verbs in all four cases, because uh, because they're essential. They're they're linked together. Uh, Oftentimes they're duplicated in in a particular verse. Uh, If you're going to pray a prayer, then uh, you'll have both 
the verb and the noun in the same verse, um, which is actually a Hebraism. It's very common in the Hebrew language, and it gets reflected in the Greek New Testament. All right, so prosuche, P-R-O-S-E-U-C-H-E. And, and really, of all the prayer terms, this is the most common. It's also my favorite. It's the concept of being face-to-face with God, that we're coming to God, we're in His presence, and when we're in His presence, everything is good. Uh, the, the EU uh, prefix that's in there uh, speaks of goodness, speaks of something that's done well. And um, similar to uh, what we'll see with um, Eucharistia, with Thanksgiving, and, and other terms that also have the EU uh, prefix. So uh, the verb is to pray, that's prosukamai. It is a middle voice verb, always, which is interesting because that makes it both active and passive in its, in its expression. That not only are we actively praying, but we are passively receiving the effects of the praying. That uh, we are actively praying to God, but we're also passively, uh, in, the, in the process of being in prayer, we are affected. We are benefited. There is a, uh, an aspect of the verb that, that affects us as recipients. Uh, so prosuke is the noun, feminine noun, used 37 times, Strong's number 4335, and then the verb prosukamai uh, used 86 times. And so that's the bulk of what we're going to be looking at when we give a, a summary snapshot. What I'm going to do, I'm going to give the vocabulary up front, A, B, C, D, you'll have your four terms, and then we're going to start giving some, some prayer principles of uh, how do we synthesize 289 uses in 256 verses. Uh, how do we boil it down and synthesize it? How do we give the essence of, uh, of the New Testament teachings on prayer as opposed to um, you know, the, the, the nitty-gritty of, of every single instance everywhere? So hopefully it'll be, if, if, if my plan works, it'll be very streamlined and, uh, and we will be benefited from it. All right, so there's the verb, there's the, uh, the noun. It is the most common noun and verb for prayer. Uh, in the New Testament, of course, in the Septuagint Greek as well, of the Old Testament, it stresses the elements of worship and blessing, that those, uh, those venues or those uh, ideas seem to be involved uh, in the usages as we have them. Worship and blessing for men, for humans who commune with God, all right? Men and women, I'll try to be sexist this morning. But when human beings are communing with the Creator God of the universe, uh, when we are in prayer, that is an act of worship. Communing with our God is an act of worship. And it is a blessing, the fact that we have such access, in the New Testament especially. Now, could Old Testament believers pray? Yeah. Can you think of an example of an Old Testament believer that prayed? Okay, Abraham prayed, David prayed, Hannah prayed, uh, and they thought the priest thought she was drunk. <laughs> okay, uh, all kinds of people prayed in, in the Old Testament. Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. Then he prayed again. We got examples of prayer all throughout the Old Testament. But praying in the Holy of Holies, how many of those Old Testament saints? The answer is none. How many of them were baptized in union with Jesus Christ, had entered within the veil, were appearing before the throne of grace? None of them. All right, we we do all of us. Even the the, the worst church age saint has privileges above the greatest Old Testament heroes, and that's the that's the the venue that we have by virtue of our Savior's victory on the cross, the fact that He ascended and was seated at the Father's right hand, that the Holy Spirit was sent to baptize us into union with Jesus Christ. So our positional truth and our prayer life 
as we study it from a New Testament perspective, is just so much greater than anything we ever see an Old Testament saint uh, enjoy. I, I, I hope we don't lose sight of that. All right, so elements of worship and elements of blessing. Okay. Now, our second term is a term for supplication, kind of, okay? or petition, or entreaty, or um, there's probably other ways that it gets rendered as well. This is deasis. Uh, the, the, the noun here that's translated supplication is deasis. D-E-E, that's the short E and the long E, epsilon and eta. D-E-E-S-I-S. Number 1162 is used 18 times. The verb is used 21 times. So here's another 39 times that we want to use on top of our prosukai, uh, prosukai, usages. This one often comes in tandem with prosuke. In fact, it really comes in tandem in, in several significant texts that we'll look at here this morning, in, uh, such as here in Ephesians 6.18 and 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. Uh, they go together, prayer and supplication, or prayer and petition, or entreaties and prayers. Different ways that uh, typically, if this one's side by side with, uh, and sometimes uh, deasis just means prayer, and it gets translated prayer. Let me show you examples of that. So uh, deasis is a prayer, it's a petition, it's an entreaty, it's a supplication. Essentially, it's a prayer where you're begging for something, okay? You're requesting something, uh, you're begging, it's an entreaty. And really it comes from someone that is so inferior and so unworthy uh, that you're just begging for it. And uh, if it was in the human realm, you would have no expectations. But because it's come, you're begging the God who loves you and sent His Son to die for you, then you have every expectation. If He did that for you while you were an enemy, what will He not do for you now that you're His child, now that you're born again? And so that's the idea of a supplication. The verb is deamai, which is an asking verb, but it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful one. It's one that really speaks of begging, uh, praying, beseeching, imploring. Okay? And uh, the idea of begging, does that seem insulting? Does that, seem, um, does that bother you at all, the idea of begging? You know, is there a stigma attached to begging? Uh, if, if uh, you know, we have, it seems like every intersection in town has some kind of vagrant sitting there and they've got a sign and some of the signs, they even put comedy notes on some of their signs, which amuse me. I, you know, I have a twisted sense of humor anyway, but I read the things they write. But, you know, and then I think about the, the begging and, and, and as opposed to working and, uh, and other, uh, other things like that. Well, there's no shame in begging of our God. There's no shame in begging of, of, of our Father, and especially when we're commanded to do so. It stresses deficiency. It stresses need or dependence upon God to provide. And really, it's a privilege to beg because otherwise our fallen humanity would, be, would have a tendency to not beg. Our fallen humanity would have a tendency to not admit our own deficiencies. And we would then uh, decide that, well, I can handle this, I can handle this. And, uh, and all too common, it's expressed in the Scriptures, it's expressed, we've seen it in, in our experience, whereby uh, believers get the attitude that they'll handle the little things, but they'll go to God for the big things. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. It says, uh, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. And we have, uh, we're to cast all our burdens upon Him. It doesn't say, you know, pick out the burdens you can't handle and cast those on Him. It says, cast all our burdens upon Him, for He cares for you. And it, it just seems like if you're going to diminish, uh, if you're not going to give God the little stuff, I think you're, you're maladjusted anyway. 
that uh, he wants the little stuff. He wants everything. He wants 100% of everything we identify as a deficiency. Because if there's something we think we can handle, what are we doing? We're taking away the Father's pleasure to provide, and we're taking away the Son's glory to provide. We're taking away the Holy Spirit's duty to provide, and we think, hey, we got this covered. What an insult to the, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are d- designed to be working in and through us. And so this is what we deal with here with deesis. I'll show you the, uh, as long as I got it up, let's uh, come to our text here. And this is the kind of thing that just drives you wild. And, and if you study Greek and Hebrew, if you study the uh, original languages, you get the word supplication, you bring up deesis, you bring up your word study, and it loads your, your color wheel here, which I like. I like pictures and colors. And... Um, And then you experience the frustration of of translation. Because you're looking at deesis and think, okay, it's used 18 times in the New Testament, but look at that variety. And the wheel is proportional based on the number of usages. So uh, the one that's used the most is this one here. You realize there's 12 times the deesis is just translated prayer. Prayer or prayers. Okay? Well, now that's a problem if it comes in the same verse as prosuke. Because then it comes across kind of stupid in English if we say, um, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayers and prayers. Well, we don't want to do that because there's distinctions between prosuke and deesis. So, all right, we don't want to have prayer and prayer. We want to find a backup translation for deesis. And that's effectively what happens. Um, deesis is used as prayer, unless there's another word for prayer in front of it, like prosuke. And then they go to a plan B translation model. And uh, so then they try, well, what about petition? And they did that three times. In, um, in Luke 1.13, Ephesians 6.18. Um, it's curious, it's twice in Ephesians 6.18. And in Luke 1, he didn't exactly have to. Because there's no other word for prayer in that verse. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and will give him the name John. And so there, uh, uh, our term here for supplication, deesis, is used all by itself. It's not, it doesn't even have a, a prosuke in front of it. And still it gets rendered as petition in Luke 1.13. It's translated, of course, as petition in Ephesians 6. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and petition, so with all prosuke and, and deesis, pray, prosukamai, in the Spirit, and with this in view, to be on the alert with all perseverance and deesis, petition for all the saints. It's called entreaties in 1 Timothy 2.1 and 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, there's prosuke, uh, prosuke, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And so there's four other terms. And in fact, one in, 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 in 1 Timothy 2 that's not in our text today in Philippians 4. And then the widow indeed in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day entreaties and prayers, deesis and prosuke. And then once it's rendered as supplication, which is our passage today. So here we're studying deesis, and this is the only verse in the New Testament that renders it as supplication. And yet, 
What do you do? <laughs> All right. Now, when I was in, oh, I don't know, 10 years old, nine years old, we attended a um, vacation Bible school, and the whole week was given over to prayer. The whole week was given over to our royal priesthood in Christ, and a big part of that was about prayer. And so we learned, and we learned about adoration, confession, thanksgiving. We learned about uh, supplication and petitions. And so as we were taught it, as, as nine-year-olds or kids, whatever, um, we were taught to maintain these rigid distinctions. And so uh, that we had to have an order in our prayer life. And so, um, you know, we start with confession, so we're in fellowship, and then adoration. We, we don't just jump into the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. We, we, we stop to say, you know, hallowed be thy name. Uh, we we, we, we want to adore our God and, and so forth. And then however much of that we, we have patience for, then we get to the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. And so we were taught, we were taught though that the difference is supplications is praying for other people. And petitions is praying for yourself. And so you pray for other people first. And so you pray for your family, your parents, your siblings, you know, your friends, your enemies. Again, as much as that as you can endure, because you, what you really want to do in your prayer life is get to you, get to the stuff you need and want. And, and so petitions comes last. And then you give your petitions, and then in Jesus' name, amen, and you're done. So that was how we learned as, as little kids. Okay, Now, I've learned some things since then, in particular, that those broad distinctions are not as clear-cut. And you certainly can't defend them in vocabulary. You cannot defend them in, uh, in the, the translations from the New Testament. And so, uh, deasis is the word, and it can be a supplication on somebody else's behalf. It can be a petition on your own behalf. And uh, you can use the same word either way. And so if you or me, if any of us want to kind of keep the vocabulary straight that way, just to sort it out in our own thinking, there's nothing wrong with that. Because remember, word meaning is always driven by usage, not by definition, not by lexical definition. So just be consistent about how you use the terms, and then you're great. <laughs> you, can, you, can, uh, you can make it happen in your own life. Keep making supplications for other people. Keep making petitions for yourself. And if you're consistent in that, then... Uh, then there you go. But then relax about how some of the Greek words are used at the end of the day. All right. So we've had prayers, we've had supplications. And really, those two, before we get to the third and to the fourth, we've got to look at the, at the sentence structure, we've got to look at the diagram. Did you ever diagram sentences in school growing up? Okay, oh, I'm so sorry. I was probably, um, we did a little bit of that, but not as much. And we were told that we were doing a limited amount of that, kind of like learning cursive. We were told we were going to do a limited amount of that and that probably after us, no one was going to do that ever again. And so sure enough, uh, in, in later years after my school career, um, they're not teaching it anymore. They're not teaching sentence diagrams. They're not teaching uh, cursive, uh, handwriting, and, and all the rest. All right. Well, the sentence diagram here in Philippians 4, 6, yes, it has four prayer terms, but the first two are definitely linked. The first two are in the dative case, and they're linked in terms of the mechanism by which we inform God. It is by prayer and by supplication. that these are the two, and then they are combined together with thanksgiving. And so if you're going to draw your own little sentence diagram out there on your own paper, you want to do it that way. Because it's by prayers, by supplication, with thanksgiving. And that then connects those two. 
Okay? And that then connects those two. So, um, thinking about just those first two prayer words, prayer and supplication. All right, I have a kind of a, a twofold dynamic in my prayer life. I'm worshiping, I'm, I'm being blessed in communion with God. My prayer life of, of, of worship and communion is there with the prosuke. Also, the request that I'm making. My begging is happening there. And, uh, and so prayer is more than just begging for stuff. It's worshiping and begging, okay? And we want to have both of those uh, dynamics at work. And what links them together is the thanksgiving, the third term that we see, all right? So I'm just trying to stress this for you in a, in a diagram, and I'll probably before Wednesday I'll create a visual graphic for this so that you see it's not just one, two, three, four in parallel. One and two are in parallel, and number three links them both. Number three links them both. And then really request is kind of a, a, a summary label for the whole, the whole uh, process. All right. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is Eucharistia. And I've underlined the middle letters of Eucharistia for a reason, both in the Greek and in the transliteration. Take off the U, take off the Tia. What do you got in the middle of Eucharistia? You've got charis. You've got grace. And Thanksgiving is all about the grace of God. And if you uh, are not reflecting upon the grace of God in your grace appreciation, then you are not functionally uh, accomplishing biblical thanksgiving. And this is what it's all about. Any thanksgiving that's a part of or that's separated from the grace of God is a pseudo-thanksgiving, and it's uh, not worthy to even have the label, even though we abuse it and we use it in that way. I'll show you an example of that when we talk about the... uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee that went into the temple to pray. You remember that Pharisee's prayers? He said, yeah, he said the word thanksgiving. He said the word I thank you, Father. But what was he thankful for? It, yeah, yeah, that he was so awesome. Yeah, it was, wow, thanks God that I'm so great. And it's, uh, you know, great to be me and, and all of that. And, and I'm better than this other guy. There was no grace anywhere in that, in that Pharisee's prayer. No grace to be found in his attitude at all. And so I would put forth that while he might have used the word thankfulness, he might have used the word, I thank you, Father, he wasn't thankful one bit. All right, so Eucharistia is number 2169. It has 15 New Testament uses. It is uh, rendered as thankfulness or thanksgiving or gratitude. I, I like the word gratitude only because it comes, it really comes from the same English cognate as, as grace. If something uh, is given gratis, if something is received with gratitude, um, the idea of thanksgiving comes from a thank comes from a different uh, root. Remember, English is a, is a mongrel language with Greek and Latin and Germanic and other things thrown in there. The verb is eucharisteo. It's got the eu. Uh, it's got the eo ending on the end of it instead of the ia ending, and uh, that makes it a, a verb eucharisteo with thirty eight uses. So there's another. You want fifty three. Uses there that you're going to want to look at. Give thanks. This is a grace response to grace giving. A grace response to grace giving. That's what real thankfulness is. It must be the attitudinal foundation for all prayer and supplication. It is attitudinal that we are thankful. And even, uh, of course, we will use the words, we will thank the Father, but even uh, beyond using the words and saying thank you, it's the whole attitude of thankfulness. Even being in his presence, we should be thankful for that. Realizing, you know, if, if, if I was, uh, you know, an Old Testament saint, 
from whatever Jewish tribe, um, I'd have to bring a sacrifice and then trust that the, the priests and were going to take it inside there and, and offer it to God on my behalf. Because I couldn't go into the tabernacle. I couldn't go into the holy place. I couldn't uh, offer up incense on the altar. I'd, I'd have to have a mediator do that for me. One of the Levites, one of the priests. I certainly couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the, uh, the Shekinah glory. I'd be struck dead for even trying to look at it. So uh, the blessings that we have should be attitudinal. The attitudinal foundation for all prayer and supplication. That's why it's with thanksgiving. So it's by prayer and by supplication with thanksgiving. Linking both of those two mechanisms. It is the attitudinal foundation for all prayer and supplication. And then the word for request. The word for request. It's really a basic word and technically, you know, is it even a prayer word? Because it's, it's a human word. We use it all the time. If you ask me anything, you just iteo me something. It's, uh, it's iteo. The, the noun is itema. And there's only three in the New Testament anyway of, of itema. And uh, in Luke 23, it's not rendered request. It's rendered, it's rendered demand. They were demanding Barabbas to be released. Itema was their request. The verb iteo has 70 uses, so there's quite a bit more there to ask or to ask for. So don't be ashamed to ask. And if, in fact, your attitude is thanksgiving, then, of course, you're going to ask. And you're not going to affect what you ask for based upon what you think you've earned or deserved. Because as soon as you've done that, what have you done? You've abandoned grace. <laughs> and so um, if, if you color your prayer life based upon how good you think you've been lately, say, you know, yeah, my... My Christian walk's been on track pretty good, pretty good lately. I've, I've, uh, I've done better with my church attendance. I've done better in my prayer meetings. I, I've, uh, I've even given a little bit in the grace box. Uh, man, I, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now, so I'm going to go for a bigger ask. And, and we're chuckling. But I think you realize this is not I'm, not, uh, I'm not speaking about something that never happens here on this planet, Okay. Then there's also the the the, the flip side of that. Um, I've been kind of crummy in my Christian walk lately. I've been uh, kind of negligent. I hadn't really been reading my Bible. I've been, you know, I don't remember the last time I was in church. Um, you know, I, I've probably been more carnal than spiritual overall in the last six months. So, uh, but now I'm in a real bind, and I know I got to go to prayer, but I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm uh, I, I'm not going to ask for a whole lot because I don't deserve a whole lot. And, uh, you know, so I go and I ask for just, just a little bit. And again, that's, there's no grace in that prayer either. Because grace, charis, grace is what God is bestowing despite what we earn and deserve. Grace, we, you can't deserve grace. If you could, it wouldn't be grace. And uh, this is what we want to recognize in our prayer life. Don't color what we ask for based upon what we think we can get. Okay? You know, it's not like we're teenagers asking for keys to the car and uh, we're wondering, mm, am I going to get that this week? Am I going to not get that this week? Is dad happy with me? Is dad mad at me? Uh, okay. I always made sure when I brought it back last week, it was a full tank of gas. Even if it was stark empty when I picked it up, full tank of gas when I brought it back. And 
that worked out well. <laughs> Next time I asked dad for the keys of the car, I, I had better success. My sister always brought the tank back empty. She never learned, ever. And I can brag about it now, it's enough time's gone by. <clears throat> she would bring it back empty. And then she wants to borrow the car again. Well, might be a little bit reluctant. Say, sorry, we're out of gas. <laughs> you know. Anyway, that's human. God doesn't work that way. God's not going to answer our prayers based upon whether you know we filled up the tank last week. Uh, you know, it's not a it's not a, a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of prayer life. God doesn't work that way. If so, none of us would be saved, and His Son would have never gone to the cross. So grace doesn't do that. In the will of God, even our requests are graciously supplied to us so that we can request them from the gracious giver. Um, I don't want to skip over these. Let's look at 1 John 5. Well, let's grab Luke 23 on the way. Only because the idea of request can be quite forceful. And even in our prayer life, it can be quite forceful. Luke 23, uh, here they are before Herod, here they are before Pilate, and Pilate's trying to release him. And uh, in verse 20, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand, their itema, be granted. That their demand be granted. So sometimes a request can be so insistent and so repeated and over and over again to where it's not even functionally a request anymore. You are, you know, demanding. You're stomping your feet. You want to get your way as you keep insisting on this thing you're asking for. All right, and so the the noun can her- can have that kind of force. The verb can have that kind of force. Our prayer life can have that kind of force. We've talked about uh, importunate prayers. We've talked about the uh, in the past telling God what He can't do, and we've viewed those as positive examples in the Scripture. Moses told God he couldn't destroy Israel, and start over with him, even though God threatened. God said, step back, Moses, I'm going to blast these people and start over with you. And Moses says, God, Lord, you can't do that. Because you've made promises. You've been, you have promises to 11 other tribes that Moses says, I'm only one tribe. <laughs> you know, There's 11 other tribes with promises, and if you destroy them all, you're not making good on your promises. Abraham told God what he couldn't do. David told God what he couldn't do. Jesus told God what he couldn't do in these important prayers. And I think that's uh, a good pattern for us to learn from. All right, 1 John 5. When you realize how gracious God is to not only give us what we ask and more than we could ask or think, but He can also supply the requests themselves. He can also supply the requests themselves. Why do we have the requests that we have? Why do we have the desire that we have? Why do we have why is it a, a request anyway? I believe First John 5 details how God gives those as well. <clears throat> Verse 13. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And uh, this is last Wednesday night as the message of assurance and and uh, eternal security and the great power that we have of being not only saved, but to be confident of our salvation. This is the verse my mother used to lead me to Christ back in the day, all right? This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so we are saved, we are in the in fellowship, we're walking with the Lord, and we ask according to His will. He hears us. Now if we ask out of His will... Is He going to give us what we ask just because we're asking for it? Can we name it and claim it even if it's contrary to the will of God? Of course not. So how do we know that we're in His will? How do we know that we're asking for something according to His will? Well, it should be obvious if we're living in the Word of God. If we're walking by means of the Spirit. If we're being led by the Spirit. He's not going to lead us to anything that's not in His will. And Ephesians says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if you don't know what God's will is, you're a fool. And I'm not name-calling, God's name-calling. Okay? But it goes on, if we know that He hears us, this is, this is a subjective realization of an objective reality. If we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. And that's not the certainty of having our prayers answered. That's the blessing of having even the very requests themselves provided to us in our soul, in our thinking, in our, in our walk before we put them into words. We have the request that we have from Him. And so whatever it is I have a request for, whatever it is, He's giving us this desire. He's giving us this request. Giving us this request so that then we can give it back to Him. We can voice it. We can offer back to the Father and watch how He provides. Watch how He supplies. All right. Even our requests are graciously supplied because sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes all we can do is uh, allow the Holy Spirit to intercede with the groanings too deep for understanding. That's Romans 8, 26 and 27. Say, Father, I'm in Your will. I want Your Son to be glorified. I know I'm in your will. I know I'm being led by the Spirit. I just don't know how you're going to choose to show yourself faithful. (laughs) Okay? I know you will. And it may not be uh, anything that I have in mind as of now. So it says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so when we, uh, when we fall short, we just leave it with Him. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so I like to think of this as the, the secret ingredient, if you will. We know when we pray that our prayers go up before the Father as incense. We know that the prayers, we have scenes in heaven whereby our prayers are poured into these golden bowls of incense. And then angels carry those prayers in and they pour it out before the Father's throne. Uh, we have that as a picture. And so we, pu- we pour our prayers into there. Well, what if we don't know exactly what needs to go in there? That's when the Holy Spirit comes along and adds a dash of this in there too. And supplements our ignorant requests. Okay, And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to be in the will of God, to be praying, and then to be relaxed to be relaxed when the specifics 
have not yet been unveiled. Because the specifics, we may not be ready for them yet. We're, we're creatures of time, bound by time. We're moving forward. You've noticed this. It's a linear time dimension, and it's a forward linear time dimension. It's one day per day as we move forward. And we can't speed it up, we can't slow it down, we can't roll it back. And so the Father is so gracious to not clue us into things too soon. I'm, I'm convinced of that, that if we, if we got too much too soon, we'd be terrified and we'd run for the hills. So God very graciously says, walk with me day by day. When he unveils these things day by day, we acknowledge what he reveals and what he chooses to, to not let us know. Well, that's fine because we have faith in him. And when he chooses to, if ever, maybe never, when he chooses to make his will known, then, hey, we'll go, we'll go from there and we'll take it like that. So we have these terms. All right, now, an inductive study, subpoint E, an inductive survey of New Testament usage, these four nouns and four verbs. You want to do the homework together or you want to just see the results? This is, <laughs> we'll go through the results. How about that? And uh, we'll, we'll do this starting on, on Wednesday. Um, an inductive survey of the New Testament usages of these four nouns and these four verbs can be summarized. And we can end up with, really, uh, a, a fruitful study on prayer that, we, that we're going to get kind of in a summary fashion here. But then I would encourage anyone to take, take these notes and then and expand upon them. Add, add your own material to it and, and illustrate it and, and teach it uh, you know, in your families, in your homes, or wherever you have uh, different Bible studies going on. Because I think uh, it's, it's comprehensive. Our Savior taught extensively on prayer. And so we got prayer passages in the Gospels. Even prayers that sometimes bother us, like that widow and the unrighteous judge, seems to be that we've got license to be nagging at, uh, at the throne of grace. And he wants us to be nagging at the throne of grace. And he uses that as a positive illustration. And uh, we'll go through the Lord's passages. We'll go through Peter's passages. We'll go through Paul's passages. We'll look at uh, at uh, John. Well, we already saw First John five, but I think that that's a, that's a significant application for us to have the requests which we have from Him in terms of uh, offering them up before the Lord. All right. So stay tuned for that, Father. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth, uh, Father. I thank you, even as. Uh, we're hitting the season with, uh, with uh, the allergies and other things that uh, you sustained a voice for this hour. We pray for the next hour and then uh, even for two more tonight if you choose to delay long enough. Father, we're waiting to hear a trumpet, so uh, trumpet pending. We just want to stay busy about your business. Thank you for being faithful, Father. Thank you for the study on prayer. I pray that each one of us would be impacted, that we would not just learn factual information, but Father, that uh, as this word is implanted in our soul, that it might shape who we are might affect our thinking and might truly motivate us, Father, to, to get engaged in our Melchizedek priesthood in very powerful ways. Thank you that next hour we get to reinforce it again from the perspective of the book of Hebrews. And we give you the praise and the glory, Father. Really, we're without excuse. If, uh, if you've given this doctrine to this lampstand, Father, then, uh, then these, these believers better uh, take heed and, uh, and make application of what you've given. To whom much is given shall much be required. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.